We are in the book of Judges again. Judges chapter 8. We have the last in the series of messages on Gideon and uh, still in the book of Judges for some messages to follow, um, Lord willing anyways. And we're looking at this section of the end of Gideon's life. And as we've been going through this study um, in this book, the book of Judges, it's one of the historical books found in the Bible, and it recovers a period of time of about 400 years in the history of Israel. From the time around the end of the close of the book of Joshua, when they entered into the land of Canaan and possessed the land and set up uh, territories within that and were following the Lord, that generation said, echoed basically what Joshua said, was, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and they were doing that. Um, but in just a short period of time, uh, one or two generations later, uh, you have Israel going back into a state of idolatry or worshiping things that uh, were not God. And that is idolatry when we put something ahead of, of the Lord. And uh, that was going on. And God begins to raise up a series of leaders who would come on the scene in various times and they would lead a reform and then they would basically uh, lead a victory against the enemies of Israel and we see that time and time again how God was faithful in doing that and he was faithful in raising up when the people of Israel repented and called out on the Lord he would raise up somebody to deliver them and uh, thus they were judges in that way and so we see that cycle and we've talked about this cycle of where Israel repents, they follow the Lord, then they start to go away from the Lord, and sometimes rather quickly, sometimes it took decades, but then eventually they would be out hiding in the groves and worshiping false gods, and then the enemy would come back into the land. As God told them, I will bring, raise up other nations to come and conquer you and to provoke them back into a relationship, and that's a picture really as we see the spiritual battle that goes on for all believers and for Christians. We aren't called to a land specifically that is a place where we hold land and then we are fighting an enemy, a physical enemy, but we have a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is for the heart. And that's what we see has always gone on right from the very beginning. And then anyways, that cycle would continue. And it seems like a, a, a very sad cycle, a, a kind of like a treadmill. You're always on it, you know, and Israel was on that. And we come to the end of Gideon's life. And the man who in many ways is such uh, a duplicity of mind in so many ways. Remember, he's first introduced to us as God seeing him as a mighty man of valor. And yet he was not very courageous. He was hiding from the Midianites. And later Gideon would finally see where he had his place in the Lord and the Lord's strength, and he would be a great deliverer. And in many ways, as we looked at last week, we see Gideon, who was victorious on the battlefield. He was a great warrior in that way, really God being the one who was lifted up. And yet, on the battlefield where he was victorious, he was not so victorious when it came back to his own heart and the heart of a nation. And we see the end of Gideon's life, we see a series of failures that come up. And I would just say this, that, and I remember Mr. Breeden saying this years ago when we were in Bible school, he, he used to say, and I'm sure it wasn't original with him, because he said this, he said, if you don't quote, you'll never be quoted. 
And so he often quoted other people. But one of the quotes that stands out is he said, uh, many men start off well, but few finish well. Few finish well. And I remember as a young man sitting in his class and saying, maybe kind of haphazardly almost, like saying, Lord, I want to be that man that finishes well, all right? Like it's going to be an easy process. And I have discovered all these years later, it's not an easy process to be finishing well. I don't know how many years, days, whatever hours I have ahead on this planet, but I do know this, that it is a struggle, and it will be so until the end, to finish strong and finish well in the Lord. And we need to encourage one another as we see the day approaching and exhort one another to finish strongly. In church history, I think of the reformer Martin Luther, who um, he was a man that in his younger years was so fiery and in, in his preaching of the, the word of God and his theological approach to justification by faith and faith alone, all right, and not with works. And he sparked a, a reformation and what came out as the Protestant Reformation. He was very much, uh, even to this day, you, you would not um, do well to neglect studying the theological works of Luther. And, and yet, at the end of Luther's life, and, and I might say that he was suffering from great physical ailments and some other issues that were going on in his life, he became quite hate-filled. Um, and he writ, wrote off, he wrote a lot of things against the Jews. And yet early in his life, um, he supported the Jew and was very much in the favor of outreach to the Jew and tried to do that. Um, But later in his life, he became very anti-Semitic. And the Nazis years later would use the writings of Luther in his last days to uh, come up with the final solution, which was sadly rounding up the Jews, burning their properties, synagogues, and then sending eventually many of them off to, to uh, concentration camps where about six million would die. Um, terrible things. And I can't say that Luther was responsible for that, but they used some of Luther's writings to get the church, which was dominantly Lutheran church, the national state of, of Germany at the time, on board with some of their thoughts. So sometimes the things that we do in the end of our life have lasting repercussions for generations and generations to come. And I say that because I don't want us to finish poorly or, or compromise on things that maybe when we were younger we held firm to. And there, is a, there, is, there are people watching for that. Horatio Spafford is another one like that. He wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We sing that. It's a wonderful hymn. And, and much of his life was a life of faith and one that in spite of the loss of, of, of his children and the loss of his wealth and all those things, he would write a song like It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, in the midst of tragedy and he would anchor his faith and do that but nearing the end of his life um, it is best described that he became basically a a cult leader (laughs) that's the only way I can put it as he saw himself as Messiah um, he moved to Israel or in the, the Holy Land and he wanted to start a communal activity you know, with basically helping orphans, and they did a lot of good work that way, but refused any of the adherents to, to be married. 
They could not marry. Uh, there were those things. There were a lot of problems. And it was just very cult-like at best. And I don't say that to diminish the great hymn that we sang uh, or sing. But I say that, that he didn't finish well. And the latter end of the man's life was one that was marked by something that was a great deviation from Orthodox Christianity, or Orthodox belief. And uh, I think that it's sometimes easier to follow the Lord and then depart from it, even suddenly, nearing the end. We see that somewhat with Gideon. And I'm going to just say that because where he was victorious on the field of battle, he was a failure in the battle of his own heart. And we're going to pick it up reading in Judges chapter 8, verse 22 this morning, down to verse 35. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And so they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. And then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at the good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Aborazites. And so it was, as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, and made Baal beareth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Lord, we are mindful of the word of God and the historical record. And Lord, we are also mindful that men are just men at their best. And that God, you are God in spite of our actions. And you desired to be lifted up in our, in our lives personally, corporately. Oh Lord, that you would even today make yourself known. And Lord, I think in many ways we are in times very similar to the end of the life of Gideon. Where many, many people are doing that which, Lord, is wrong, which is sin. And Lord, our nation is in a dark place if we follow that way. And so, Lord, help us as believers today, as people who are called by your name, to live as you would have us to live 
and to stand firm for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We have here the the failures in the final days, and we see some temptations that came in Gideon's life. And I think these are temptations that all of us can be subject to at any given time. Uh, There are certainly more temptations that are available for that. But I would just say these these ones in Gideon's life um, affected him and affected those around him and affected his household. And we're going to look at it a little bit this morning. The first one was a secular temptation. In other words, the the nation around him, which um, was Israel as a nation, uh, they desired to have a king like the other rulers around them in the other territories. And it made sense that Gideon, this great victor, uh, this great warrior, would be the king. I mean, it just made sense. And they didn't just want a king for a certain term. They wanted a king whose dynasty would last. And all I can say up front on that is that there seems to be that kind of desire in most people to have someone to rule over them. And they desire that. And I will say that all earthly leaders fall short in that area. Some are better than others, but all fall short. There is really only one who will ever rule in this world who will be perfect, and that's Jesus Christ, when he comes to set up a kingdom, as the Bible describes. But there's always a secular temptation to have leaders around you and to elevate them into a place that they aren't really deserving of. Now, God had told the nation of Israel in the law, he actually told them how their leaders should operate and all that. One thing God left out in that is that they were not to have a king, or he, he, he basically told them, didn't give them provision for a king because he wanted to be the, the king. In other words, the Lord being the ruler of that. And we see initially here, Gideon passes the test. And I mean that because he goes on to say this, and this is right after, remember, the defeat of all those Midianites, 135,000 of them, and then there were another 15,000 they chased down, and then they took out the kings of Midian. And you remember then, even after that, Gideon comes back and pictured again as the righteous judge, and he deals with those in Israel as well who had rejected And uh, we see him uh, having this great victory. And they immediately want to make him a king. It says, the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. The word rule means to have dominion over us. In other words, be the Lord over us. Okay, and I say Lord with a small L-O-R-D, right? Um, The idea of having someone who is your king, essentially. And then it goes on to say, and your son. In other words, Gideon, you're so good, we, we know your son's going to be there too. We want your son to rule over us. And not only your son, but your grandson. And I think they had in mind just this whole lineage coming out of Gideon that they will have rulers that come out of that family. And they would call themselves under the dynasty of Gideon. He says, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. That generation was thankful that they had been delivered. And instead of turning to the Lord... Instead, they turn to Gideon as their savior, and they want to elevate Gideon to a place that he wasn't called to. Goes on to say, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. That was good advice, all right? Nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And I'm glad Gideon had some measure of fortitude there, uh, and, and he knew that it would be wrong for him to be king. 
And he says that. And he reminds the people of that. Uh, I think, my friends, sometimes, and it's, by the way, it's not necessarily wrong to have leaders. It's not wrong to have kings, even. There's, the world history certainly allows for that, you know, provision of leaders. But for the Jews and for Israel at that time, they were not to have one. God actually told them no. And it would have been disobedient for them to do so. Gideon recognized that. But there was this temptation to make him king. Temptation on behalf of the people and temptation for Gideon to accept that. After all, who wouldn't want to be king, right? That's sort of what they say. I don't think I would because I know all the problems that the king has. I have enough problems on my own. I'm not a king, you know. I can say this, though, that um, there's that element within us, the pride of mankind, the pride that says, I want to be a king, I want to be a queen, right? I want to rule people, those kind of things. Well, be careful with that request. This was not... Um, they were not alone in that. Later in 1 Samuel, we read of that same desire in Israel. They wanted to have a king. That time they went and they had a king. They had Saul chosen. And Saul was started off as a good king, but he didn't end up as a good king. Later, David would be anointed king. And by the way, God chose David. See, the timing of the kingship that was in Israel was really what was at play here. Sometimes we want to do something ahead of God. It wasn't that Israel was not going to have a king. It's just they had to wait for the right one. And it would be David who would be chosen in that situation. Um, and again, God uses us in spite of our bad decisions sometimes. Lots of history with Israel under the time of Saul, under the time of Gideon, all the times of the judges and the times of other leaders that were present. And none of them were perfect, but yet God would use them and he would continue to weave his sovereign hand upon the history of this world to allow the very things to happen that needed to happen so that when the fullness of time came that he would send forth his son. (laughs) And he's still doing that. And it's not by chance that you're here today and you're living in this year at this time, all of that. God is still sovereign and in control. But you see this refusal that goes on. And, and I would just say that it, it, it is important that uh, we don't just side with the majority. Gideon, in this case, was in the minority. The majority of people wanted him to be king, and yet he said no. Sometimes it's hard to say no when you're in the minority, isn't it? I'm reminded that in Scripture, sometimes the majority doesn't get it right, do they? The same you know, time in the time of Jesus, it was in the majority of people that were saying, crucify him, crucify him. And yet he was an innocent man. He was God the Son, and he had to go to the cross, but yet the majority wanted him put on a cross. I probably would have been in that majority in my sin. And I'm thankful he still would have died for me and you, because he loves you with an everlasting love. He loved the Israelites. He loved the nation, even when they wanted to choose bad things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminds us, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? 
For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body which, and in your spirit, which are God's. And we're reminded that for the believer, for the Christian, you are not your own. That's a hard thing, you know, because we live in a world where it's all about me. Everything is so self-directed today. When you look at whatever is flooded to you, you know, it's all about you and not about something bigger than you, someone bigger than you. And we live in, I think, some of the times where we're most selfish. And I, I'm not saying that that doesn't affect me. It does. So much of our daily activities are centered around what I want. And the Lord comes along and he says, if you want to be a follower of me, you've got to deny yourself. That's the first thing. That's the hardest thing. Because I don't want to deny myself. Naturally, it's about me, right? That's what we say to ourselves. And then you have to be confronted with a gospel message that says, I'm a sinner. That means I have to confront that sin. And I have to deny myself and say, I'm not so important. There's someone more important than me, and that's God. And when we confront our sin, we realize who we are then we start to live for him, we'll also want to live for others. Very important. By the way, Jesus came and he died for selfish sinners. He gave his life for us. And when Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians here, says, you are bought with a price, that was the price of your salvation. It was the death of someone else Not just anybody, but the Son of God, the one who gave himself for us, the one who was sinless, died for sinners. Wow. You're bought at a price. You cannot go out and do only what you want to do apart from God. At the basis of that is really pride. And pride is the is I would say the original sin it is we read of in Isaiah chapter 11 the account of Lucifer who is Satan who when he was in the presence of God in heaven uh, wanted to be like the most high God he was lifted up in pride in doing so he wasn't God by the way And God did not tolerate his presence in such a state and cast him down, the Bible says. But a third of the the angels in heaven fell with him, according to what the book of Revelation says. And we find out that when he comes to appear in the garden to Adam and to Eve, he has the same problem. Well, he kind of provokes it in their heart as well. And it was there already. Pride. For God knows in the day you eat thereof, you'll be as God's, knowing good and evil. That was what he said. That's the first lie recorded in the Bible. And where does it go? It goes to the pride. You want to be like God. And so they did. They were, they were deceived, but they uh, willingly as well, because uh, they had the word of God, and they had the relationship with God. They had a perfect world, and they sinned. And sin was brought into the human race from that point on. And since then, we've had a problem with pride, haven't we? A lot of problems. The Bible says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what the Word of God says. It ought to be really 
something that we remind ourselves of every day. And sometimes it can be a great spiritual fall because in the sense that the sinner who is proud can never find repentance because they can't deal with their own pride. God is willing to forgive any sin. But if you cannot get over yourself, you'll never be forgiven. It's that simple. We read of that. And by the way, sometimes you just have to say no. And there's ample illustrations of that. Gideon, in this case, said no. And I think sometimes, my friends, we just have to say no when sin rears its head in front of us or something that tickles our pride. And you just have to say no. Because when you do it, you say no, it's a lot easier up front than if you just kind of, hmm, maybe, maybe I can entertain that thought. Maybe I can entertain that action. And then later it leads to a whole lifestyle change, right? <clears throat> I better move on. There was a secular temptation. And then next there was a spiritual temptation. And this is where we find Gideon failing. And initially, I don't know, maybe he had good motives. And sometimes when people have the best of motives, but they do things in a wrong way. And, and I mean that. There's, there's illustration in scripture of that. And I know lots of anecdotal stuff, just having, you know, over 30 years of ministry, looking at um, being in churches and organizations and other things. People have really good motives sometimes, but their methodology is erring, you know, or the outcome of it isn't good um and don't judge people just on their motives but on the fruit of things right judges chapter 8 verse 24 then gideon said to them now keep it in context he's just said no to being king so he has a better thought all right this is where he errs. i would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from your plunder for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So when they had conquered all those thousands of warriors with the Midianites, the Midianites were very wealthy. We, we, we have the description of them. Their, even their camels had necklaces, all right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's quite something, right? And, and they did as well. And, and Gideon says, I just have a little request of you. Give me an earring. Now, if I said to you today... Um, okay, you know, folks, uh, just give me one of your earrings, all right? And I don't know, I don't want your earrings, trust me. But I'm just saying, uh, out of this room, I'm just looking around, a lot of you are wearing earrings, you ladies, and, and you know what? You probably have quite a few, just a little handful. But you can imagine maybe 135,000 of these earrings that were there, and they were made of gold. That's a pile of earrings. Actually, we're told the there were 1,700 shekels worth of gold pieces that were given. And it wasn't just earrings. The people said, oh, well, we can't have Gideon as a king, but surely he's, he's on to something. So I'm going to give him what I do have. And they, they gave him a little more gold. And everybody gave him a little piece of gold. And that idea of wealth came in. And I don't know where it's set in his heart, but we do know where it's set in the people's heart. And sometimes our intentions are, well, I'll do something that's lasting, but not, you know, not the king thing, all right? That's too much. But he compromises in this area. And by the way, this wealth, the little bit of gold that everybody gave, all of a sudden made itself into something that was a, an ephod, a priestly garment. And in doing so, um, it caused them to worship something that wasn't God. Look what it says in verse 25. So they answered, we will gladly give them. 
I mean, after all, just what's a little earring, right? And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 19,250 ounces, which at today's price for gold would be almost $1.2, $1.3 million worth of gold. It's a lot. Wow. Amazing what one little earring can lead to. Man, this is, this is something maybe I should do. I don't know, you know, that, you see? But you see what that, we get thinking that way. And I don't know if Gideon had in his mind how much gold that would be. But all of a sudden, little gold turns into this and that. And by the way, I don't think all the gold went into the project he had in mind because it would have been too heavy for them to move. And instead, he takes some of that gold and he makes an ephod and it goes on to say this, um, uh, verse 27, Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. That's his hometown. And it's amazing what people will do in their hometowns to make their name a lasting legacy. Right? This is the same Gideon who grew up. He was in the least of the families. He was an absolute nobody. And all of a sudden... He's, um, he's, the, he's, he's the guy that's saying, no, I don't want to be king. And he has all this wealth. And he says, I'm going to do something in my hometown. And it would be something that would be attached to his name. And he has them make this ephod, which is basically part of a, a priestly garment. And he makes it out of pure gold. And it was this thing that would have had it like gold. And it would hung around the torso part of the priest. And it isn't put on the priest. It's just put in the, in the town. And, and, and as people would go by that and look at that and come see it and see the wealth that was established out of that. Really the plunder from the enemy. And they would say, wow, Gideon must be an important guy. And it's always amazing how much, if you follow the money, you will always find it often points back closest to home, doesn't it? <laughs> In politics especially. And that tends to be what happens. Not always. Sometimes there's good people. Sometimes they, they refuse those things. Um, I think of that because in our own history in the United States, our first president was who? George Washington. Fred, you remember that, right? Where are you? No, you I pick on him now all the time, but, but, but he, he's good for it. I, I keep saying that. George Washington, who was General Washington, started out as a British officer, ended up, of course, head of the revolutionary forces of the United States and uh, basically um, the, revolution, the, the army uh, of you know, what became the United States. And after the victory over the British, the people loved George Washington so much they wanted to make him king. That's before we had adopted a constitution or anything like that. And they just got rid of a king and they want to make him a king. And to his credit, George Washington refused. And he refused on the basis that they had just gotten rid of a king, King George, and who wasn't a good king, and that it wasn't his place to be king. It wasn't, it wasn't Washington's place to be king, and that they shouldn't do, go that route. 
I like some of his quotes. He said, mankind, when left to themselves, are unfit for their own government. <laughs> oh, boy. That ought to be written probably over the steps of the Capitol. He also said this, few men have virtue to withstand the highest bidder. Boy, that's true. Somebody comes along and says, hey, here, here's a little money. Oh, oh, here's a guy with a little more money. Hey, how are you, friend? You know, that is the sticky business of politics today in the United States. has been for a long time. I'm not getting political here. I'm pointing out facts. And by the way, it's across the board. When asked about being a king and his motives and all that, Washington would write in a letter, I have no other view than to promote the public good and am, un- am, excuse me, and am unambitious of honors not founded in the appropriation of my country. In other words, he, he didn't want the honor. And I'm glad for that. The city that bears his name today is probably anything but that. The wealthiest three counties in the United States all surround Washington, D.C. Follow the money. In 1884, they finished the completion of the Washington Monument. I've used this illustration before, but it stands to be reminded, or we stand to be reminded of it. In the 1990s, when they were re-renovating the Washington Monument, um, some workers there uncovered some a wall portion inside it, and un, un, underneath that, um, there was somebody from the 1800s who had written a little inscription. And this is graffiti from the 1800s, and I like what it says. Quote, whoever is the human instrument of, under God in the conversion of one's soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. <laughs> and it's signed BFB. Nobody knows who BFB is, all right? Best friend before, I don't know. <laughs> but he got it right. That great monument to George Washington and I don't think Washington himself would have been in favor of it. Um, I think he was a, indeed a, a great man to be honored and to be respected and many other things, and a, and a man for that time, and not a perfect man by any means. But, but nevertheless, what we do with things, we elevate. It's in us. We just want to have a bigger monument to whoever. Of course, now people want to tear that monument down and, you know, it's just whatever else. And it's not about monuments. It's about God. That guy who was obviously involved somewhere along the work of the construction of the original monument, he got it right when he said, whoever is the human instrument under God in, in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. Why is it more lofty and enduring? Because it's eternal. Everything else just fades. I don't know where the ephod of Gideon is today, but it's probably in somebody's ear again, you know? <laughs> Reasons for that. Jesus put it this way. And by the way, people wanted to make Jesus king before he was, he was at that state. Remember, he feeds the 12,000 or the 20,000 and and. And they come and they, they, they're thinking, this is the one. He's going to put down Rome and we want a king. 
But they didn't want the cross. By the way, you can't have King Jesus without the cross of Jesus. But if you accept the cross of Jesus, you will have King Jesus too. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to please God? Love him more than anything else. And when you love him more than anything else, you'll love others also. Imagine if we lived in a world today where there was a lot more of that. I mean, it's still a sinful world and with, with sinners. But I will say this, that when people have embraced the Lord by faith and, and internalized that, not just put it on the outside, that's just religion, but inside. Indeed, they have gone out and made a better place for people to be. And a lasting legacy. Well, the last part of this, by the way, and, and by the way, it says back there in um, Gideon, Look what it says in verse 27 there on Judges 8. It says, Then Gideon made it into an ephod, set it up in his city, Ophrah. And the word Ophrah means um, rubble. It means like dust, you know. The city of dust and rubble, he sets up this great big beautiful ephod made out of gold that people would just go, wow. But look what it did. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. That's God's commentary on it. Uh, A harlot is a prostitute. Someone who sells their, their body for uh, the pleasures of others. And he says Israel sold themselves into spiritual idolatry. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. And I don't know when that occurred, but it did occur. You see, they all of a sudden thought, this is a great thing, we're going to put this thing up, but it became a snare, a trap. And a snare, by its own definition, is something you do not see coming, all right? And, and the Satan is so crafty, and, and our own sin is so deceitful, that we will set up snares in our own life and not see what it will do. A snare is a kind of trap that, that will end up constricting you to death. When they talk about snaring rabbits, which is illegal in Maine, don't do it. But to snare a rabbit, I only know this because I was a game warden son, but people will take a little, a little piece of twine, you know, wire, and you make a, a slip loop in it, and you hang it over the trail right in where a rabbit would run through a, a hair. And as they catch their neck around that, their head around that, it'll snug up. And then naturally you want to get out, so you pull against it. And as you do, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter to eventually, excuse me, uh, where it will constrict the animal. And I just say sin is like that. James, in the book of James, says that's how sin is. And when it is finished its course, it brings about death. And the only victory out of that is through Jesus. They set up a trap for themselves. And it snatched them. And and you find that. Now, the last thing is there was a social social temptation. I, I, I say peer pressure. It's a big one. 
Judges chapter 8 verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. And by the way, just because you live in peace and safety and security and all that doesn't mean you're doing well spiritually. The generation to come would forget everything. My friends, it is so important you live for Jesus now. You live for the Lord now. Because there are others watching. And it says then, Jerubbabel, that's the the name for Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Now there's there's a problem. Gideon in his standing, because he was now a wealthy man and and an almost king, you know, ruler, he says, you know, I maybe should do what the other nations around us do and other kings and other rulers. They, They don't just have one wife, they take multiple wives. Now, because there are multiple wives in Gideon's life doesn't mean God is telling you to go get another wife. Matter of fact, in the occasion of of Scripture where we first are introduced to that, we find it in the book of Genesis. And and if you go in Genesis chapter 2, when you have Adam and Eve in the first marriage, which was ordained by God, and it was the pattern that God established in marriage, was between one man and one woman. That's it. One man, one woman, not one man and two women, not two men, two, you know, two women, whatever. It was one man, one woman. And when man deviates from that, we first learn of that in uh, Genesis chapter 4, and in verse 19, we read of a man named Lamech, took for himself two wives, and then it names the two wives there. That was in the line of Cain, by the way, a line that had not followed the Lord, And it brought trouble. This is still before the flood. And it was really more of a sign of the time. We know in Deuteronomy, under the hand of Moses, and you have God giving his law, God told the people or the leaders of Israel, he says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. See, what happens is, men, you only have enough in your heart for the affection of one. And if all of a sudden you're trying to give your affection to two, three, ten, hundred thousand, whatever it is, it's going to turn your heart away. We know that that's the case because we read of Solomon, a king who was beyond uh, David, his son. Remember it says of, of, of uh, Solomon, and he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. We find with Gideon, wealth began to turn his heart and his followers. And later, women did also. And that's not to say something against women. It's to say this, that wasn't the way God wanted it. And though God didn't just strike him dead at that point, there are consequences to our actions. And I'm glad that God is gracious with us with whatever situation we find ourselves in. But I I just tell you this, um, God is the one who wants the glory in things. And we read a little further on, i got to go back to my notes here, but um, they began to turn his heart away, for he had many wives. And his concubines, those are women that weren't his wives, that he was intimate with, 
who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And, and, and again, you don't know perfectly, it doesn't say what's in his heart, in Gideon's heart. You just know this, that then when he was given the opportunity to have a dynasty that would have king, you know, him being a king and his son and his grandson, and he wanted a name for himself, all of that, he, he, he says no to that, but then he, instead he gets a little bit of wealth, and then he decides, well, I also got to pass that wealth on somewhere, and so he has 70 sons by many different women. And it's going to bring about problems later. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Aberzites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. Baals are the, that fertility goddess, you know, and gods uh, of the rites of, uh, uh, of the pagans around them. And as soon as Gideon died... And it just says that in reality, they feared Gideon more than they feared God. Even though Gideon wasn't a perfect man, he had done some things in his life that were godly. And because of that, it kept, in many ways, the the effects of that righteousness in his own life was was enough to keep sin at, at, at bay somewhat. Not completely, because in their hearts, they were still sinning. And as soon as Gideon was dead, they went right back to the false gods of the Baals. Wow. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. In the end, it wasn't even worth it for the children of Gideon, because they didn't do good to them either. And my friends, that's the way it is. If you want something that's lasting, then invest in those children now, in the Lord, in those grandchildren, in those that you have opportunity to influence in your life for the Lord. Because everything else, you may pass on to them millions of dollars. And it isn't coupled with that knowledge of God and the worship of God in their life and being the most important thing. It will never it will actually come back to consume them or anything else that you want to do. Say, man, I, I just want to have a, you know, now in America we don't even want to have kids, you know, that seems like it, but big families, you know. People don't want to have big families. And some that do maybe for false reasons or whatever, but it's not about the size of the family. It's about the scope of influence you have on others. Be involved in the conversion of someone, <laughs> you know. If it be none other than just to daily pray for them in that. And you'll have a far more lasting legacy than Gideon did or anybody else. Lord, we are grateful for the word of God. And Lord, I am reminded that really what we do now affects others, even if we don't think it does. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to just live a life that is close to you, a life that indeed needs repentance constantly, but a a life, Lord, that is victorious. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the many things in the life of Gideon that point us to Christ. And Lord, we are reminded that these things that we talked about today, the, the bad things, they are warnings for us so that we do not go that way. And Lord, we pray for our church here and our families that are represented. And I pray, oh Lord, you would be the center of our families. You'd be the center of our church, the center of our community, of our country. 
in our leaders. May you raise up people that would call us back to godliness. And may we yield to you first and foremost. In Jesus' name, amen.